Hello and welcome to Not A Buffalo, the show where we discuss the science and technology that will save the world. My name's Ben and I'm here to make you laugh. This is Jack and he's here to make you think. Which can only mean that we are talking about the 2020 Ig Nobel Prizes. Woo! Are you excited, Jack? Yeah. Yes, I am. I'm I'm extremely excited because this, I think, is the first time we've had a regular feature on the show that we've been regular with. I think it is. I right? think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> look at look at us getting all professional like. Yeah. And you know what's even even better? We have the return of formerly the mystery segment, known as the uh, as the Hollage segment as well at the end of this. So we're going to have two regular segments on our first regular show. That's incredible. We've we've come so far since those heady days of since we were just two guys recording <laughs> in our bedrooms and now we're just two guys recording in our bedrooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because we can't go outside. I mean, before it was that we didn't want to go outside. Now it's that we can't go outside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But anyway, just just for some background context, for those who don't know, um, I'm sure a lot of people out there are familiar with the Nobel Prizes, which are being announced, mm. I, I think, at time of recording um, this week. I believe the physics prize has just been announced, uh, which went to people for black hole research. So that's really interesting. Check Ooh. that out. Um, but back in 1994, I believe, uh, 1991, sorry, the Ig Nobel Prizes were started as a way of uh, making people laugh, but also making them think, as I said in the intro. Um, and the, the 2020 Ig Nobel Prizes were announced uh, a couple of weeks ago again at time of recording obviously not when this comes out we record way in advance we are super prepared that way so prepared there's some great uh, advancements in science shall we say but also just very interesting stories so so jack which one do you want to start us off with oh there are that this is the thing there are 10 here and they are all fabulous but i think i'm gonna start with the one that was at the top possibly just because it was alphabetically the first one which is the acoustics prize which goes to Austria, Sweden, Japan, the USA, and Switzerland, and researchers Stephen Reber, I'm going to get a lot of these names wrong, Stephen Reber, Takashi Nishimuru, Judith Janish, which is a great name, Mark Robertson, and Tekumsha Fitch. What a great difference between first name and last name. For inducing a female Chinese alligator to bellow in an airtight chamber filled with helium-enriched air. <laughs> that just, I mean, reading that just made me laugh. And uh, just a side note, thanks very much for starting the trend of we have to say the names, because I know I'm definitely going to have some <laughs> difficulty with the names going forward. This is the fun part of the Ig Nobel Prize, isn't it? Is, is reading our names. <laughs> we know we're getting them wrong, but the, that's the fun thing, isn't it? We know it's wrong, and so do our listeners. We're doing our best, and we are more than happy for people to correct us. We welcome corrections, mm-hmm. uh, so please do uh, write in to us. Or better yet, voicemail into us. Yeah. just you do, know. do we have a function for accepting those? I'm sure we do, somewhere. I'm sure Twitter has audio attachments or some... some, some I, don't, I don't know anything about Twitter. Ben manages our Twitter. Badly. <laughs> <laughs> just, to, just to put that out there. Uh, but yeah, what, why don't you tell us about why um, these researchers decided to make a female Chinese alligator bellow in an airtight chamber filled with helium-enriched air? Perhaps it's worth... Let's address the helium in the room first, since there is no elephant. <laughs> the helium is present because it makes it easier to hear the sound and the pitches that the alligator is making sounds at. So then we sort of reach the question of why do we want to have the alligator screaming into a room for the helium? You know, why do we want to have them screaming into a room? And why do we want to understand that scream? 
This is very. This is, I'm going to stop using the term scream. It's a bellow. A bellow. Technically, yes, a bellow. A bellow. Sorry. I, yes. So why why do we want the alligator to bellow, Jeffrey? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so we want the alligator to bellow because it's not very well understood what the sounds that reptiles make mean. There is some understanding of different sound patterns from, say, dogs and cats, because they're domestic animals, they're quite easy to study, they are very heavily studied. Alligators are not so heavily studied on the, on the sound front, and so the title, actually, of the paper gives kind of an overview of what they're attempting here. So, a Chinese alligator in heliox, that's helium-enriched oxygen, formant frequencies in a crocodilian. So... Uh, a formant is a set of bands of frequencies in phonetic which determine the character and quality of vowel sounds in a language. And so the idea is that by having this crocodile bellow into the room, it's going to be possible to identify some of the sound patterns and perhaps work out what their calls actually mean. At the moment, it's sort of roughly assumed that the calls have something to do with indicating the size and ferocity of them. So maybe it's a way of like indicating to other crocodiles that you shouldn't come over here because I'm bigger than you, that kind of thing. But it's generally very, it's very difficult to identify them. And so that's what this research is about, is trying to better understand the communication between crocodilians, which is quite an interesting idea. I think from my reading of it as well, doesn't it also give us an insight into avian? Because I, I know mm. they mentioned a lot about so birds, essentially, when I say avian. Also, obviously, use sound for mating calls and to establish territory and everything. And the, the funny thing that links sparrows and crocodiles is that they're both descended from, from dinosaurs or from the time of dinosaurs. And so it gives us an insight back into the ancient past as well. Is that, uh, did, I, did I read that right? Yeah, you did. There is a direct line from the pigeon to the Tyrannosaurus rex. And crocodiles are quite interesting because they've remained pretty much unchanged as creatures for several million years. So understanding their calls might give a sort of indication of the evolution of birdsong, even. There are all sorts of interesting links with this research. This is one of the things I love about the Ig Nobel Prizes. They, I remember listening to an interview with the guy who ran them and he described it as research which makes you laugh and then makes you think. And I think this does just that actually <laughs> yeah they have a good reason for doing a lot of this research mm -hmm. yeah. and it just ends up having a rather amusing initial result or on the face of it an, an unusual um, methodology yes. <laughs> i suppose going about it yeah so, yeah definitely like the one from last year about oh, there was one about pizza last year i can't remember what it was but something about pizza in italy protect against illness and death yes yeah. um, that was that was the medicine prize that was the one <laughs> i knew i couldn't remember if it was like does it just taste better if it's in italy and i was like no it feels like there was an actual like that was a great one i really enjoyed that one last year. pizza if pizza is made and eaten in italy it protects against illness and death or might protect against illness and death. We actually should follow up and see if it if they had any further study into that one. I would be very surprised if it does. Unless, like, the whole Mediterranean diet is running on some kind of advanced placebo effect, at which point it becomes like, is it an ethic? Would it be ethical to reveal that the Mediterranean diet is a placebo effect? Probably not. You'd be responsible for the death of thousands of Italians and exactly. <laughs> <French> like, and... <laughs> I hope it's not. I mean, I, I can't imagine it is, but at the same time. It's one of those things that could totally happen. That'd be worrying. I mean, you, you've set me up there as a perfect segue to go into this year's Medicine Prize, mm. but I'm not going to because my favourite 
was the Psychology Prize. Oh. Miranda Jacoman and Nicholas Rule devised a method for identifying narcissists by examining their eyebrows. The title it's is Eyebrows enough. Q Grandiose Narcissism. <laughs> There's a lot of previous research about narcissism, so that is the uh, grandiose narcissism specifically is the tendency to be egotistical, self-focused, and vain, and is a dark personality trait. Just uh, I'm going to put that in, in quotation marks. Narcissists can often come across as very charming and likable initially, and it's only once you get to know them a little bit that you realise that they are very self-centred. So, being able to recognise them f- straight away is, is a fairly useful ability to have, and apparently you can tell that by, by examining the eyebrows. And uh, I, I love the methodology in this as well. So what they did is they, they photographed 39 undergraduate students. I think there was uh, 26 female and 13 male. They have a photo in the article, don't they? They've blocked out bits of the face, right? Yeah, they put it into grayscale. They block out everything except the face. So they block out the rest of the head. And then they basically show different elements of it. So sometimes they only show the upper half of the face. Sometimes they only show the lower half of the face. Sometimes they just show the eyes. Sometimes they show the eyes with the eyebrows. And they basically eliminate each different part of the face. I think there was about 10 different pictures that participants could see. And um, all of these 39 uh, students had completed a narcissistic personality inventory, which is kind of like a personality quiz. And they found that actually just from the eyebrows alone, people could tell who was the narcissist and they actually did this so one the very final photo that they showed to people was you could only see the eyebrows and they found that there was a stronger success rate to people identify the narcissist from that than when you just showed the eyes which i just thought was it's interesting isn't it just incredible yeah because you know eyes are the window to the soul but the eyebrows are the window to the self-center yeah there is this cliche isn't there in popular culture of you know can't look someone in the eyes and be lying right you can tell if someone's lying if you look them in the eyes but in actual fact, if you look them in the eyebrows, then, well, you probably stand a better chance, according to this research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I love it. I, I participated in a psychology study when I was at university. Ooh. And typically what they do is they tell you that it's going to, they're measuring one thing when they're actually measuring something else. Because um, they, they need to get you into lab conditions. So they have to tell you they're doing something, but they don't want to, to mess up the results. So I just love the idea that this researcher, it doesn't say what they told the undergraduates what they were going to be studying or if they told them the actual result of the study at the end but i love the idea that they they gathered these 39 graduates and said yes we're looking for defining objective features of beauty and then at the end said actually we were testing for narcissism and turns out you're a massive narcissist and not beautiful (laughs) it would be nicer to find out you're not a narcissist and not beautiful than to find out that you are a narcissist and not beautiful i agree not only because no one wants to be a narcissist but because i think a narcissist would take it harder well i think that's the thing about narcissists is is it's very difficult to shake their their self-belief mm. like they if you tell them they're terrible and present them evidence they usually find a way of rationalizing it to themselves and mm. just getting angry at you and uh, assume that they are still perfect and i mean i definitely can't think of any good examples of grandiose narcissists that are in the public eye at the moment uh, I'm, I'm sure there are some out there since. hey <laughs> i think i think we should just take that segment of me going hey and put that in after every joke <laughs> we can call it donny like the italian <laughs> essentially the summary of this article from from what i can see is that well-groomed eyebrows tend to indicate a narcissist so if you see someone who has perfectly primped and plucked and perfected eyebrows then just watch out because they may spend far too much time on themselves doing it than on looking out for others noted that was the psychology prize in the ig nobel prizes okay I don't have a segue. 
but I never have a segue, so that's fine. I mean, to be fair, in this episode, they are all like there are very distinct categories of prizes. Yeah, so that's true. It would be fairly impressive to be able to segue between them, but I don't think it's strictly necessary. So I could use the same segue for every single swap. Exactly. From this prize to another prize. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the next one I'd, I'd like to look at actually is the physics prize, which is to here come the names is to Ivan Maximov and Andrei Potosky for determining experimentally what happens to the shape of a living earthworm when one vibrates the earthworm at a high frequency. This is ridiculous, but it is also great. There was there was one quote, I think we were talking about this before the show, and there's one quote I found in it, which is, so we experimented on four different types of earthworm. And it's like, just to make sure, right? Because earthworms <laughs> differ so much. The thing I like about this is, that, so the, the title of the, the paper was Excitation of Faraday-like body waves mm-hmm. and vibrate to living earthworms. Yes. If, if you kind of understand all the words behind it, you think, did they just start, like shake a, an earthworm around between their fingers or something? It was on a plate, I believe, that, that vibrated. I suppose it's a bit like those machines. What are they called? They're, they are like a weight loss machine where people stand on them and they just the, the plate just kind of jiggles. Oh, power plates. Yeah, yeah, stuff like... It's kind of like that, but with using, like, much higher frequency waves. Faraday waves, they're named from Michael Faraday, who is in, an interesting man himself, actually. He was kind of instrumental in the study of electromagnetism and electrochemistry, and he was one of the very first people who wasn't from, like, a sort of landed or... or genteel background to be part of the royal society interesting man faraday waves which is what the earthworm experiment used are those ones where i don't know if you've ever seen where someone puts some colored beads on a like very small granules of sand or something like that onto a plate and then by putting a wave through that like a high frequency wave through that can make those granules form into a shape you know, maybe it's a smiley face or maybe it's a cross or maybe it's a circle or, or something like that. And they can manipulate it by changing the frequency. So it's that's the kind of wave that they were using on the worms. The example I saw um, from my understanding of it was um, mm. it's like the glass of water in Jurassic Park. Yeah. Because the whole glass shakes. And so it's the water, it's the waves that form in the water from the whole glass shaking around yeah, it. Yeah, it's exactly that. What's kind of interesting about this is... The use of these in a living being could be used to perform things like surgery, because if you've got a, if you've got that a single cool. wave going through it, you know they know that that can go through and that can go through harmlessly, right? Now, what you could do is because of the way interference patterns work, you could have two waves going through at different angles, and where they meet, you could create destructive or constructive inferences. And then you could focus the waves and you could use that to say you've got a growth which you think could be cancerous and it's surrounded by vital organs. It'd be very nice if you could destroy that growth without actually opening the patient up. It, it hugely reduces the risk and it's just a lot safer for everyone. And that's kind of what they hint at in their conclusion is that they think that there are some really interesting ideas for the use of Faraday waves and interference structures which i thought was like a really cool like they don't really hint at the really useful stuff until right at the end in this in this paper and when i got down to that i was like oh yeah that is cool that's really cool it strikes me as one of those things where they were kind of bored one day and they just started vibrating worms up and down and then 
their boss walked in and it's like what are you guys doing and they're like science uh, we're, 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 we're studying we're, we're figuring out how to how, medicine and you know <laughs> uh, surgery and stuff yeah that's what this is an application for and yeah. they're like right we, we, we've got to figure out how this is relevant and then they just got really really lucky <laughs> yeah i was just gonna say it, that's a, it's fantastic i love that they they've had such uh, incredible uh, scientific um, discovery or, or, or breakthrough or, or at least indication of a good road to go down from doing such a uh, on the face of it such a mm. pointless <laughs> experiment oh it's fantastic yeah I'm going to go to the one where they actually had no real conclusion. I really enjoyed mm. the, this story, and we, we may have to cut this one out because it might not strictly be science, but it's the management prize. I don't know if you had a look at this one. Oh, this is the string of... Yeah, yeah, this is this is hilarious. The, the Chinese trial document that it links to, actually, it seems that Google Translate was able to get it into English pretty pretty well and it reads fairly straightforwardly it's definitely not written like a legal judgment or or anything in the in in the uk In October 2013, Tan Yuhui was worried that his investment in a real estate company in Guangxi would lose money as part of it because of a lawsuit uh, that explains a little bit earlier on. Mm. But he instructed this guy, uh, Zi Guangang, to hire a killer to kill Wei, who is um, someone who was suing the the real estate company. Mm. Uh, Zi Guangang found someone, a guy called uh, Mo Tianjiang, and hired him to kill Wei. And I think the original uh, Tan gave Zi 2 million yuan to, to hire the murderer. And then it went down the line yeah. of it's... five hitmen in, in total. And no one performed the actual murder, did they? So yeah, Zi, Zi Guangang hired Mo Tiangshang. And Mo Tiangshang then hired uh, and hired Yang Kangsheng for 270,000 yuan plus an additional 500,000 uh, later on. Mm. But then Yang Guangsheng then hired a guy called Ling Zhanxi. Mm-hmm. And then he hired Ling Zhan eventually for 100,000 yuan. And then at the end of it, Ling Zhanxi repented and decided not to kill Wei and mm. actually contacted him via a note and um, explained that someone had spent 100,000 yuan to kill him. Um, <laughs> a lot more than that. <laughs> yeah, no one died mm. and uh, five hitmen got arrested and sentenced to prison. It's almost like a Monty Python sketch yeah. or something, isn't it? It's the kind of thing you can't quite believe that it actually happened, mm. but it, apparently it did. What's kind of interesting about this is I just finished this book by Russia Bergman called Humankind, and there's a lot in there about the deep-seated human desire to not kill and to not perform antisocial actions. I mean, the central thesis of the book is actually that human beings are fundamentally good, which is an amazingly nice thing to be reading an academic text on in 2020. It is, yeah. And I, I do highly recommend it. But this story plays right into that kind of model because everyone went, I don't want to kill him. I don't want to kill him. I don't know the bloke. I, let me do. Let me loan this out to someone else. You know, and then the next person goes, I don't want to kill him. I don't know the bloke. In an odd way, it's a kind of positive social interaction if you look at it that way. Mm. Although it is still kind of farcical the way it, it, it occurred. It is. And I, I like to believe that they all had that kind of, I don't actually want to do the killing, Same. so I'll, I'll pass it on to someone else rather Same. than just the, I can outsource my job and keep a, little, a lot of the money. Yeah. It may not quite be science, but it's definitely, I, I think, Jack, you turned it into a science story there. So thank you for that. My pleasure. That was my second story. So Jack, which, which is your third favourite Ig Nobel Prize this year? Number three is going to be the Entomology Prize, which goes to the USA and Richard Vetter. So he's collected evidence that many entomologists, which is uh, people who study insects for a living, are afraid of spiders, which are not insects. 
two more legs. Yeah, exactly. That's in fact is the name of the paper. Arachnophobic entomologists. When two more legs makes a big difference. <laughs> so <Hooray. there's>, <laughs> we did a lot of takes of that, listeners. <laughs> this is a very like this is a really rather in-depth study. And it's also a lot of these, it's worth mentioning a, a lot, if not all of these are available for free, which a lot of scientific papers aren't. This one is particularly nice because it has a nice sort of easy to read PDF and it has lots of graphs which were pretty obviously made in Microsoft Excel. <laughs> but my favourite of them, Richard Vetter was looking into like the, the different traits, which, you know, trying to identify where the arachnophobia is focused. And he has this wonderful chart where he's he's asked the different entomologists, you know, what are the features of the, from this list of features, what are the ones that really bother you about spiders? And it's got stuff like having many legs, the way they move, unexpected, fast running, they bite, have fangs, dangerous and maybe dangerous as different categories. And there's one that right down the bottom in amongst the appearance kind of ones, which are ugly, disgusting and filthy. Everything else has at least 20 people who, oh yeah, yeah, no, this really bothers me about spiders. Filthy, zero. Zero people care about the dirt. I mean, you'd hope entomologists would be kind of used to that aspect of, you know, grubbing in the dirt for for, for insects and things. Yeah, but there's more than 20 people who are like, oh, it's ugly. I don't like it because it's ugly. Like, (laughs) which I'm sort of like, I I get, but at the same time, that sounds really judgmental. (laughs) Yeah, especially because they probably think dung beetles are beautiful. Yeah, exactly, right? (laughs) There was some interesting... It's kind of interesting for arachnophobics more generally, this paper. We often talk about exposure therapy, right? And if we expose people to stuff, they can get over it. One of the conclusions in the paper is that if the arachnophobia originated at a young age for these entomologists, even though they were exposed for years in a professional setting to spiders, it made no difference and the arachnophobia wasn't overcome. And what's kind of, the other kind of interesting thing is that even if the entomologists developed warm feelings towards like other bugs uh, other insects those weren't extended towards spiders so there might be you know similar things with six legs or arthropods more generally but the arachnids seem to be excluded from this so there's something quite specific about arachnophobia which just being a professional bug catcher does not help you overcome which is quite interesting i think because it's it's quite specific yeah it is odd Mm. is that a cultural thing do they think just you know you get more horror films about spiders than you do about i suppose dung beetles or or anything else yeah it, it could well be it could also be something that maybe spiders tick a lot of those reflex fears that humans humans accumulated living on the savannah maybe we went through a phase where spy- we were surrounded by very dangerous spiders and that's just sort of innately human is that we the ones who were afraid of spiders survived or had a pre-tendency to be afraid of them survived more and that's where it comes from um or it could be totally cultural i i really don't know enough about the subject one kind of interesting thing he has a score of how man, how much his respondents disliked particular animals and there's everything on there from tigers to butterflies but the, there was only one that scored higher in disliking than the spider on average. And that was the tick. Oh, really? The mosquito 
he is less was less disliked by his respondents than the spider. That's insane. Mosquitoes seem just universally. They seem more hated. trouble, don't they? Mosquitoes, like yeah, they definitely are responsible for more deaths than spiders. I'm sure of yeah. that. But then I think the tick is also kind of interesting because that's also another biting animal, right? Mm. And one of the one of the big things in this paper is in that graph of disgusting things I was telling you about earlier with the filthy being none of them. Two of the really big fears are they bite and have fangs. And so I wonder if there's some kind of link between being bitten and disliking a particular creature. Very possibly. I can, I can see that. That would make sense. For example, octopus, much less disliked. But they suck. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to make that joke. <laughs> This is it's, it's reasons like this that I love doing this podcast with you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was my arachnophobia story and the entomology prize from the Ignoble Prizes, which is story number three for me, I think. Maybe four. It is. It was three, uh, it was number three, yeah. I think. So I think I might uh, I might talk about my number three in my top three. Mm-hmm. And then we can maybe give a quick overview of some of the other yes prizes that um, that happened. But I'm going to go, I think, for the economics prize, which went to Christopher Watkins, Juan David Leon Gomez. This is a brave list of names to be reading, Ben. <laughs> you throw me off now. <laughs> um, Agnieszka uh, Zelianowicz, Max Korbmacher, Marco Antonio Correa Varela, Anna Maria Fernandez. Daniel Wagstaff and Samuela Bolgan for trying to quantify the relationship between different countries, national income inequality, and the average amount of mouth-to-mouth kissing. And yes, I got all of those on the first try, and you can't prove otherwise because of the magic of editing. Just, just to back you up there, you genuinely did read those very well. <laughs> I was very impressed by that. <laughs> Who knows if I got them right though? I, th- I think I've probably got a- some of them right but anyway so yeah this is actually uh, this is almost a two-part study Mm. so what they were examining is romantic mouth-to-mouth kissing and to be honest it's very difficult to make anything sound romantic when you say mouth-to-mouth kissing in a in a scientific paper but but that's what they were talking about and it's culturally widespread so throughout the study they actually examined uh, over 3,000 people from 13 countries across six different continents and uh, they, they actually didn't come to a, a final conclusion. But what they found was uh, was two things, essentially. Um, so the first was that mouth-to-mouth kissing is more important in established relationships. It's less important in, in casual or, or single um, relationships. But they also found that countries with high income inequality tend to kiss uh, a lot more than people in low income inequality countries so yeah countries such as Botswana where there's quite high levels of income inequality so you have a few very rich people and a lot of very poor people there's a lot more mouth-to-mouth kissing particularly in established relationships than in countries where there's a lot more equality between incomes so countries like Norway, Finland uh, you know the the countries that always pop up when you're talking about a good (laughs) a good metric yeah, the Nordic can't. No, it's like Nordic plus Netherlands, isn't it? Is usually what you end up with there. 
possibly. But the interesting thing about the study as well is they found that kissing was more correlative than hugging, uh, hugging slash cuddling, as they say, or sex. So yeah, ki- kissing was. Uh, I-, I think that makes sense because it's one of the things they highlight is that kissing is, is in a lot of ways, it's more of a sign of of trust between people because you're know, swapping saliva and, and particularly now we know how dangerous it is with the the pandemic and everything. But uh, it kind of evolved more as a, a a symbol of romance and trust rather than of of simple mating behaviours or um, of lust essentially so and they found that it was a bigger indicator um, or it correlated with government inequality now the conclusion of that is is still to be examined but uh, yeah congratulations to them for winning the the economics at Nobel Prize just uh, definitely an interesting thing to to look at and the research as I just say was gathered mainly through um, uh, surveys online, online surveys so self-reported which they mm. uh, acknowledge as a rec- as a limitation of their study but it's an interesting initial sort of survey of that area and it's also quite interesting that they they looked at other forms of romantic interaction and they found that there was such Mm. a gap because i i wouldn't have expected that i would have expected you to see sort of multiple to see curves that were roughly you know the same i would expect those behaviors to be quite tightly correlated but interesting that they're not you know but the countries were uh, czech republic germany france austria i'm gonna guess could be australia it could be it's it's lumped in with a lot of the other European countries. Yeah. Though, so Australia's got quite good income equality as well. So it probably is Austria. Then uh, UK, Republic of Ireland, Italy, India, USA, mm. uh, Nigeria, Brazil, Chile and Colombia. Yeah. Is that six continents? That's not six continents. Maybe it is Australia. That would make more sense for it to be six continents, wouldn't it? Because I could definitely see Africa, South America, North America, Europe, Australia. Oh, and uh, yeah, Asia is India, obviously. Yeah. There's a really good book, actually, if you're interested in income inequality on the subject and how it correlates to uh, a bunch of other social issues and challenges that that countries are facing at the moment called The Spirit Level, Mm. which is actually quite old. It's at least 10 years old now, but it's still an absolutely fantastic read. Um, It's mostly graphs. So if you enjoy graphs, you know, you'll enjoy this book. very good it's interesting i think i remember one thing that stood out for me is there's definitely the correlate levels of happiness and stability mm. with income inequality so again nordic companies um generally score quite high on happiness and democratic stability and things like that mm. and and have low levels of income inequality and there definitely seems to be a, a strong correlation there yeah exactly to give you um, a quick overview quick run through of the other prizes i have to say one of my absolute favorites that really made me laugh was the peace prize oh, great wasn't it Back in 2018, uh, the governments of India and Pakistan had their diplomats uh, surreptitiously ring each other's doorbells in the middle of the night and then run away before anyone had a chance to answer the door. It's so sweet, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> I, I, I wish that was the way all countries just solved the disagreements, mm. was just passive-aggressive doorbell ringing and bomb-knocking and things like I that. I think that would be amazing. I, like, I would love it if we, if we only resolved international disputes through playground games. Yeah. <laughs> think, of, think of the lives that would be saved. It's amazing. <laughs> it's incredible. Any other ones that stand out for you, Jack? I think the medicine prize was pretty good because it's. it seems like he noticed that something hadn't been properly categorised and then categorised it. So this was to Ninka Fulenk, Damien Dennis and Arnold Van Loon. And they diagnosed a long unrecognised medical condition, misphonia, which is the distress of hearing people make chewing sounds. My partner has that without a shadow of a doubt. She definitely has that. She absolutely hates hates it. And uh, I was raised all proper like, so I chew with my mouth closed. Um, mm. I'm sure I do. And she still has a go at me for chewing too loudly. It's funny because the word has been around for years, right? Like, I think 
I think you've even you've even described this to me before using that term and yeah I've definitely heard it I think all they've really done is that they've put together the paper's name is uh, misphonia diagnostic criteria for new psychiatric disorder I'm like is it really new have you not just like <laughs> have you not just split something into a bunch of medical terms like is this <laughs> that's that's what it reads like to me but I don't know yeah uh, exactly. Uh, I think the only other prize um, that uh, that we haven't covered there is the Material Science Prize. Mm-hmm. I have to say I avoided partly because I'm not a fan of uh, of toilet humour and definitely wanted to avoid that. But uh, you are the, <laughs> <laughs> a team of scientists from the UK and the USA met in Erin, Michelle Beber, James Norris, Alyssa Perone, Ashley Rutkowski. Michael Wilson and Mary Ann Raganti showed that knives manufactured from frozen human feces do not work well. Important research. Important research. (laughs) A conclusion that shocked no one. Yeah. (laughs) What do you mean there are better materials? Also, the one thing I like about the the, the website uh, that, that summarizes the Ig Nobel Prize mm. is, is they have a winner from uh, 2009, uh, Dr. Elena Bodnar, who demonstrates an invention. She's demonstrating her invention, which is a brassiere that can quickly convert into a pair of protective face masks, yes. which I bet is paying dividends now. I bet she's a millionaire <laughs> by now. <laughs> no one wants to wear the bras anymore and they could turn them into face masks. And then, you know, that I mean, that just seems like it was made for this year. So I have to check in and see how she's doing. Yeah. That sounds like I can call her up. I want you to call her. I would like that. Honestly, if you can get her as a guest on the show, like that would be amazing. That would be cool. I might, I might just call her up and say your your Nobel Prize is being upgraded to a super, to an actual Nobel Prize <laughs> for your work. We're not. I mean, we're not from the Nobel Prize Institute, and we don't have the money. But we'll call it a Nobel Prize, and then you can say you've got a Nobel Prize. How does that sound? <laughs> we'll start a petition. We know scientific institutions are very susceptible to petitions like Boaty McBoatface. <laughs> mm, man, Boaty McBoatface was great. He's definitely come up in a number of our podcasts now, which I bet no one was expecting. Even Boaty McBoatface. Maybe, maybe he is like the patron saint of not a buffalo is Boaty McBoatface. I mean, he's not a buffalo, so exactly. it does make sense. Yeah. I think that's it. That's uh, that's the the main aspect of our show. That's the main segment, the 2020 Ig Nobel Prizes. We do encourage you to to look them up yourselves and and keep on top of them because they are just f- fantastic. Uh, as I said, hopefully they've made you made you laugh and then made you think. Before we begin the next segment, Ben, I need to go and get the empathy game because we don't have it. <laughs> you you go get the empathy game. I'll just riff. Perfect. In fact, whilst I'm waiting for Jack, I might just record here an apology to everyone whose name we pronounced incorrectly. We we did try our best, but one of the great things about the Ig Nobel Prize is, is it does bring together teams from right across the world who just have uh, a slight curiosity and the slightly unusual side of scientific research. And often, as we've demonstrated from the conversation today, have actually come up with some uh, some really fascinating findings that will hopefully have a, a positive impact on the world, which after all is the, the thing we aim to do here on Not a Buffalo. You took that riff very seriously. I did. Much more seriously than I anticipated. Time for host knowledge, Hollage. Is that the theme song we had for this song? That's that's the theme song. We're doing Hollage time here. So this is Hollage time. It's Hollage time. We play one card from a game called the Empathy Game in order to increase your host knowledge or Hollage. I will roll a dice because we're not in the same room. And then that dice will tell me which card to take. 
and then one of us will answer that card, and then the other one will answer that card, and then you will know more about your holage. I, I think I should read it out first, so I don't think you should look at it. I think you should just hold it up to the camera, and I'll read it out first. We can do that. That, that works. That works. That sounded good. Memory. Memories. I'm definitely going to cut out all of my singing from this episode. No one wants to hear that. When did you break a promise? That's a that's a tough yeah. one. That's a harsh one. Not often. Um not often. I think the the most recent times when I've broken promises have been promises I've made to myself where I later realized that I'd promised something wrong um to myself or something that was unmanageable or was just not no longer like fitted with who I was um so I'm trying to think of a good example um so there was I mean there was a time when um I would I promised myself that I would work every hour of the day to uh to achieve a certain thing in my career and then I later realized that actually to properly develop into the kind of person who is um, good at what I do, um, rest was kind of key. And so I broke that promise um, because the aim was the aim was to get to a certain place and not to run myself into the ground. And um, yeah, that, I think that's the last time I broke a promise. That's uh yeah. It's funny when you said that because I'd be quite similar to you. I take promises very seriously, and I, I deliberately mm, don't I promise things. And I, I even even simple things, I I I avoid using the word promise unless I, I actually mean it and I'm dead serious about yeah uh, doing it. Um, I, I do think they're I do think they're they're, they're an important thing and uh, to try and keep. So I'm trying to think. To me, it, it's probably similar. I, I hate to. It feels like a little bit of. Uh, a cop out. I'm generally trying to think of a time I broke a promise to someone else. I can definitely think of times I've broken promises to myself. Mm. Usually on the lines of I promise that I will practice uh, a new language every day until I learn it, or oh, I promise yeah. I will get up and exercise. <laughs> I, d- I definitely break those kind of promises all the time. Um, <laughs> to, to myself, well, I've, I've gotten better. I'd say as, as I got older, as, um, I, I suppose trying to do less, but doing what i am doing mm-hmm. better but yeah i'm generally mm. racking my brains for times when i broke that's probably a pretty good sign that both of us struggled so much to answer this yeah yeah it's definitely yeah. it would be quite bad if we oh yeah 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 last week right <laughs> i left I left three women at the altar i'd promise i'd marry all of them <laughs> on the same day <laughs> There's all around town, there's different churches and everyone's waiting for Ben, which would be a great name for a reboot of Waiting for Godot. <laughs> waiting for Ben. Takes place in three different churches simultaneously. I love it. I, I don't want to make this film. <laughs> God, I, yeah, I, I'm actually still really trying to think. Yeah, I, I think I've taken promises quite seriously since I was mm. young, for as long as I can remember anyway. So yeah. I, I not made... And even things like, you know, I'd never say, oh, I promise I will do the dishes um, or something like that unless I'm like, if I if I say that, I'm going to do the dishes that um, <laughs> that, that evening. But I will definitely avoid avoid saying that unless I am dead serious about doing something like that. Yeah, that's this is actually something I um, I really like about you. It's a really old fashioned idea, but you're a man of your word, right? 
Like when you say you do something, you're going to do it. I, I like to think so. I like to think so. Yeah. So I guess that's our show. It is. Do you want to take us out, Jack? Hopefully you enjoyed this segment of Harledge. Wait, I forgot the theme song. Host knowledge, Harledge. Can I say, I want you to sing all the theme tunes into my heart. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Thank you very much for listening. Please subscribe to the show to never miss an episode and rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. If you'd like to get in touch, we are at Not a Buffalo Pod on Twitter and Instagram, Not a Buffalo Podcast on Facebook, or you can contact us through the website notabuffalo.wordpress.com. Bye. Bye bye.